0: And this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. When I started writing what is now called From What Is to What If, the first person I spoke to was Lucy Neal. And now as the process enters its final editing stage, the last person I'm interviewing for it is Lucy Neal. Lucy is one of the most imaginative people I know and is hugely skillful at bringing that imagination out into the world. She's the author of the seminal book, Playing for Time, Making Art as if the World Matters. Her background is in theatre, and for 25 years she ran LIFT, the London International Festival of Theatre. When she left that, she became what she calls a sort of maverick, free-floating radical, and threw herself into the transition movement, in particular in her neighbourhood, creating with others Transition Town Tooting. I sat down for quite a while, she told me, and absorbed information in greater detail and depth about how quite how systemic the collapses that we were undergoing at every sort of level were. I began to deeply question what a role could be for somebody that worked with the imagination or was passionate about our creative skills and work as artists. The imaginative spin on transition that has emerged from tooting has been deeply inspirational. Speaking of her work with TTT, she says it has been a fabulous learning experience about where we're at, what the possibilities are and how profoundly important I felt our imaginations were in conjuring what was possible or what could be remarkable and how we could imagine different futures. She now works as a creative associate with Encounters Arts. She teaches writing at Arvon. She supports different projects that excite her, such as the London National Park City and Aluna, which is building a monumental tidal moon clock on the Greenwich Peninsula. Asked to describe herself in one word, she reaches for Possibilista, someone who sees opportunities and then works with people across ages and culture to get them to happen and, as she says, getting terribly excited in the process. It feels fitting that she is the last interview I did for this research, although not the last to be published. A couple more are in the pipeline. I started our conversation by asking Lucy what imagination means to her and why is it so important in finding our way out of our current crises?
1: I think the imaginary
0: helps us renew the real
1: uh, and that's why I think it's so profoundly important. Some time back I got really annoyed and wondered to myself, where did we learn that to be positive about things was to be unrealistic and to be negative about things was to be realistic? And every cell in my body sort of rebels against that, you know? Um, and I suppose it was certainly during the years of running an international theatre festival and particularly working in the street and working in public places, one had to work across many, many sectors of the police and the fire officers and, you know, all the agencies that were involved in public spaces and conjure in their imaginations first what it was that we were proposing, you know, to build a raked seating in the River Thames or to light a flame out of bankside power station. So none of those events existed when we first went into meetings. So we were constantly saying, uh, laying out what it was that we were going to try and do and paint it in pictures and slowly kind of work towards uh, the event. And then once the event actually happened and people kind of were in awe of what it was that had happened, you realise that every single dynamic around that place and how people connected to it and how they remembered it and how they carried the experience, that there had been a renewal in how that place was then going to be remembered or how those, the essence of that experience was going to be carried Um, on with people. So we have this remarkable ability as human beings to conjure things in our imaginations and design them when they're not in evidence in front of us. But we can do that. We can bring about something new and different. Um, And it seems to me that that is possible every second of every day in every single way. I and mean, if we look, if we look out around us, everything about the natural world is changing constantly, whether it's the leaves on the tree or the seasons. We live in a constantly transforming world. Um, and that is also true of ourselves. Um, and it was Joseph Boyce, the German artist, who talked about, you know, he said, everyone, jeder Mann Mein Kunstler, every person, an artist. And he believed that, you know, the war was happening. He called it social sculpture. You know, about how the transformations were happening in our imaginations first. And that really to live imaginatively is no more and no less to kind of see that field of change and see that field of possibilities all the time. And at any one moment, with any new encounter or any turn of a corner, that field can be changed. And we, we are the we are agents in that field. We simply do not need to accept what is around us. You know, the status quo is just something that is settled into a pattern that day. Obviously through various people's interests and things like that. But I, I feel it's really important to constantly be looking at it differently, going, Yeah, and also well, and if, you know.
0: And one of the things that it that it feels like you and and Ruth Bentovim and, and people and with the encounters do so beautifully is that creating those kind of what if spaces and, you know, uh, asking what if really beautifully. I wonder what, for you, are uh, the, what makes a really good what if question for you?
1: What makes a really good what if question? Fun, actually. I think fun is a very silly word, but as the actor Roy Faudre once said, fun is a very silly word, but it's a very productive state. Um, and if one of the essences of what we could be doing collectively at the moment, is to play, you know, to play together, to imagine, you know, what different scenarios can happen. Um, you know, play is the one thing that's seriously under threat at the moment because, as you know, you will have discovered at great length that if we don't feel safe, you know, if we're frightened, you know, we're not going to learn and, and all our cognitive capacitors will become very, very sort of narrowed. So to play is to learn and to kind of open up what is imaginatively possible. And I think we must feel safe. And so I think if you're creating a space in which people are going to work together creatively, which is what Encounters and, and Ruth Benton has led superbly, um, a good invitation to people is one that catches their curiosity almost immediately without even their thinking. You know, and what I've learned, you know, through doing the shop encounter shop that we did in Tooting, is that that threshold between somebody hearing an invitation. I mean, outside the, the shop, we put a big blackboard, and it said, "What is the spirit of Tooting?" But other days, it said, "You know, what makes you smile?" or "Who or what do you miss?" or it was a question that they were not expecting, but could very, very easily answer, and in answering it, found everyone else was answering it, and therefore immediately found themselves part of something and connecting remotely with with a lot of other people. And they had accepted the invitation and taken part in it um, and then entered into a whole world of other questions and activities and found themselves affirmed in their place in the community in doing that. It was playful, but it was also quite serious, you know, because one was also asking them what... They were fearful of, or what they yearned for, or what they were hopeful for, and what I've learned is that 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 people are so biddable and they're so ready to engage. It's it's sort of like a millimeter beneath the surface, but but it appears to be very um, covered and sort of boundary but actually an invitation to join in or an invitation to kind of cross that threshold. I I think it's very, very easy, actually, because I think we're so full of, you know, we're so full of the stories of our lives and we're very biddable
0: about sharing and engaging them, if the space is right. You talk about the need for that space to to feel safe. You know, what are some of the some of the tools or the tricks of, of 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 how you can how you give people that sense that they're walking into a space that is safe
1: I think you're honest you know I think you're present with people I think if you're if you're the host or the person inviting that uh, your intention you know you have to kind of hold your intention in that quite clearly, which is that it's a genuine offer you know you're not going to then sell them a car or something or life insurance. <laughs> yeah which we we're we're bombarded with such invitations all the time, so I think it catches people's unawares i mean Ruth and I have talked about the double take you know how do you curate the double take, which is when people look at something, which I think is where you know artist' work is is often so fabulous, which is what you know i you know i in, in that sort of moment of not kind of completely reckon, i mean i know you've um You've spoken to Helen Marriage, but, you know, when when the elephant was in town, there wasn't a second of the day that went past when everyone was going, what, 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 what? You know, and it's in that moment of curiosity when somebody's caught out because it's not what they're expecting. But it's, it's what you do with that moment. You know, you don't just do that, but then it's where that can go. You know, and I think that where that can go is something important collectively To hold and to guide and to frame the way in which we can then encounter each other and work creatively with each other. And it's out of that that remarkable things happen. I mean, I I think the thing that I remain passionate about is the sort of alchemical qualities that come about when people work together creatively, you know, which is that I, I suddenly find myself surprised at doing or making something and someone else finds themselves surprised as well. And it's what people make together that is where the alchemy is. And I I think coming back to the context in which we're all living in at the moment is that I sort of feel deeply that we haven't yet seen what it is that alchemically people can create and conjure with um, that is remarkable. And I know, of course, being realistic, and we know what the physics is, and we understand you know, the, the, the physics of what's happening. Yes. We, ha- we must look at that and accept that. But it's a kind of yes and these other things are also remarkable and we don't yet know what might be possible if this happens and this happens and we do that and they do that and they do that and they do that. And then. although having said that, I think at the moment it's, it, we are living through a sort of rather, rather remarkable time of that and, you know, the, this is happening and it is being kind of called out, you know. We don't
0: know you don't know one of the things that as i've always loved about what you do and what you create is is how you create kind of what if spaces like the tooting 12 was such a beautiful what if place was something completely different and we're just going to spend the day living as though that had already happened and giving you a taste
1: that, that was a good example of an invitation to people to do something differently in a place that they were very, very familiar with. And this was in the heart of Tooting. We don't have a square. We don't have a piazza. We don't have a communal social meeting place in the middle of Tooting. We have a lot of traffic. Um, and we have a lot of organisations sort of focused on traffic and keeping traffic moving all the time. And that includes buses. And buses are very important. So the bus turning circle in the middle of Tooting uh, customarily has about 10 to 12 buses on it pretty much every five minutes. And so asking London buses if they would go away for the day. Yeah, the question, the invitation we put was what if we create a pop up village green
0: there? You said uh, you said we've we've played with the idea of what could be possible, but let nobody say after today that it's not possible.
1: Well, there you go. You see, that's where I make the the thing, the idea that the imaginary renews the real. You know, we desperately need, you know, as much attention. There's one thing that I took inspiration from one day, which was that I discovered I am not a mathematician or a physicist. But I discovered that in mathematics, the, the small letter I is denotes an imaginary number. Um, and you can't have the square root of minus three or something. And you, but it's at, at the heart of quantum physics, at the heart, at the heart, at the heart of our most physics physics. If you study all the equations, um, there are all these little imaginary eyes everywhere. And I found myself in the Lido sauna one day. I can send you the picture if you like, sitting next to a chap called Alberto from Spain. And he had a bit of quantum physics tattooed across his back. And I saw this little eye and I said, Alberti, could you explain this eye to me? Ask somebody to explain the eye in quantum physics. And he gave me the answer, which was this. He said, well, we don't really know what the number does, but it sort of goes to one place. And it's all about wavelengths and particles. And when it comes out, the equation's been kind of sorted out and it's as though it exists at right angles to the real world. And I was going, what are you talking about mathematics? What are you talking about? But actually what he was talking about is that we need the imaginary sometimes. We need the imaginary in a functional way. It's very functional. And it functions to kind of go to another place in order to kind of do something. And then when you come back to the real world, it's kind of sorted and it's different and it's changed. It's been transformed and the real has been renewed. So, so I do see it as a very functional thing, as much as it's magic and it's alchemical and you cannot really evaluate it or put your finger on it. But I actually believe it's the most important thing in the whole wide world.
0: Imagination is. Yes, yes. So, so for you, so for you, creating a what-if space is like creating a space where that letter I, you're bringing that letter I into the tangible world, into people's experience.
1: Yeah, and you're letting people um, connect. It, it's not just what one person might be imagining as a possibility, but it it gets very exciting when when people are doing that creatively together, because you know that is the way you form a different kind of knowledge. You know, and that, that's what we need at the moment. We need collective knowledge. We need to share our skills. We need to share what we know. And that means that I have to hear you out with what you're imagining, because then that might spark something. And actually us working together on a project or in a scheme or in something, you and I together, we will create a new kind of knowledge. And that's what we need. We need new common knowledge. And we need to... Um, I mean, there's a educational theorist called Vygotsky, who is a Russian, and he, he talked about um, scaffolded learning um, and sounds a bit technical, but zones of proximal development, which is any learner, you know, can kind of be here but can learn that. And then a good teacher or somebody will, will work with people together, so they help each other, and that's called scaffolded learning. And I feel that's what, at the moment, society has kind of exciting potential to experience, is scaffolded learning, you know. But you need everybody to feel able to contribute to that. You you need everybody to feel a part of that, you know. You know, and where we are politically at the moment, will we actually have citizens' assemblies? Will we actually have, you know, where we all get together and actually the diversity of skills, the diversity of perspectives, The diversity of stories and knowledge and, um, can be shared constructively. But going back to the spaces, I think that it's, it's not only about the imagination, but I think it is, it is also about, it's how we connect with, you know, at a, at a heart level, as it were, profoundly and deeply to what it is that matters in our lives, you know. And being in places where we can be convivial, peaceful, communal, creative. To me, these are all like oxygen. They sort of turn the soil a bit, you know, and we need as many of those as possible, I think. I mean, I, I've just had, if I could just relay one quite interesting experience is that with encounters, we have this project at the moment called Walking Forest, which is looking at trees and it's looking at mycelium and how forests think but it's also looking at how one could shift the way the natural world is represented in our legal systems and in our economic systems it's very inspired by the suffragettes and how um, incredibly creative they were, you know, their actions if you look at some of their actions and the kind of creative ways, they kind of winkled their way into the streets the shops, the, you know, the music halls, the places, the public spaces and some of their actions, it was participatory and the invitations were fabulous. They were quite funny. Um, and on the basis of all that, um, Shelley Castle and I travelled to the Polish climate talks and we took with us the seed of a particular tree, which is the last standing tree um, from an arboretum that the suffragettes planted near Bath. So it was just a little seed, tiny seed, um, and it was both a seed that could be propagated and, and grow into a, it was an Austrian pine, and the, the current one that's standing, the, the, the arboretum in question was cut down in the 1960s completely to build a housing estate in Bath. There's one standing which was planted by the suffragette, Rose Lamartine Yates. So we collected some of these seeds, we made them into beautiful little sort of gifts, and our mission in going to the Climate Talks was to cut across the paths of as many... Negotiators, ministers, kind of who we saw to be sort of key players as we could. And just to find a few minutes with them where we could sort of almost sort of ceremoniously sort of hand them this gift. And we, all we did our invitation to them, we didn't ask anything of them at all, except that when we explained the seed and asked if we could gift it to them, that, that if, that they say yes, that, that was all that we asked of them. And then we gave them the gift. And I'm still slightly reeling at the impact of this and realizing that the seed is tiniest, smaller than a peppercorn. It is an actual tree, an actual seed, and it could become a 500-year-old Austrian pine. But more important was the imaginative role that that seed had on those people. And I realized its power was imaginary, in that the symbolism of the seed and the way the suffragettes planted it to symbolise the work they were doing in their day, which they would not live to see necessarily the fruits of what their campaign was about, and the impact of gifting the seed to people at COP, and how immediately, in a matter of seconds, they identified with the intention with which the tree had been planted and their intention of force and courage and boldness of their intention, working hard, doing whatever it was, representing the least developed countries or their work. And it was instantaneous, their capacity to imagine and the the sort of, well, as they reported it to us, the courage, the beauty, the, the depth of feeling that being gifted the seed. And coming back, I realised that, yeah, at one level, we'd given them a seed of a tree. But at another level, we had given them the possibility of imagining the significance of their own work and the courage that they needed to continue that work, knowing that in a 100 or 500 years' time, maybe, 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 maybe something would come about as a result of the uh, the, the work that they were doing. So I felt very humbled by the in those sort of few minutes that we had with people it was the sort of transformative energy of imagining their work you know as, as a tree
0: that was growing You were uh, uh, playing for time pulled together a whole load of different artists and writers and creative people and um, looked at what they did as a as a particular form of practice as a um, sort of imagination meets, meets environmentalism, and very sort of eclectic things that people were doing. I wonder if you could sort of distill what you learned from researching and writing that book about, about um, kind of grounding the imagination or giving the imagination form or activism underpinned by imagination.
1: Well, I learned that the people that are in the book, including yourself, um, and the people who I've subsequently had contact with, uh, appreciated being identified in a, a sort of virtual community of an emergent practice, which, because we silo our arts and we talk about visual arts or dance or theatre or whatever, what I learned about playing for times practice in the in the attempt to describe it through all these different people's ways of working, combining, you know, an intention to bring about change with their creative skills and their imagination, but that a practice is definitely emerging which can be identified. And the hope was that in identifying it and having different people describe it, whether they're, you know, working with land systems or with water or a notion of home and belonging or food or whatever, um, is that in identifying it as a distinct emerging practice, um, that it it helps to develop the practice and it helps to develop it to to, to for it to be done more widely. And often the people practising it, because they're not necessarily working in conventional spaces, they're often out and about, sort of in the field as it were. And sometimes they can feel a bit lonely. And actually, the most important thing about this practice is to is to be working with others. And they are working with others. But I think what the book does is that it helps them see themselves in the context of other people doing similar work. And I've had very sort of heartwarming responses from people saying, I feel part of this practice. Thank you for giving it a picture and drawing it out and kind of naming it. And... Uh, I mean, the book was designed as a handbook. And to my amazement, it is. I mean, I heard the other day from the Gate Theatre that Ben Okri had run a poetry Japanese renga workshop at the gate. And when I said, does Ben Okri do renga? And they said, we followed your, we followed the recipe at the back of your book. It's to validate, it's to validate it. It's to validate the essence of that practice when in the everyday out and about, you might not see it because it's not necessarily kind of, you know, in a theatre space next Tuesday. But I, I think the core of Playing for Time just sort of literally just dropped into place one day for me when we were doing an event within the context of Transition Town Tooting. And we were essentially getting the town to sort of imagine 2020 or to kind of, re, you know, draw up a different kind of ways in which the town could work towards, you know, being reimagined. And, and that was when I just thought, this, this is the arts. This is what artists do. This is about reimagining things. This is about seeing things differently. And this is about putting our attention on how we're renewing the world and reimagining it. And I think that was the moment when I just thought the processes were so fundamentally similar about um, facilitating creative processes in the public realm. I was curious to know what that would look like if you did actually then completely focus on artistic and creative activity per se you know but within a context of you know what is happening ecologically
0: yeah i uh, one of the things that i've been thinking about is you know if if our challenge our challenge now is to The difference difference between innovation and imagination, so innovation, uh, whatever governments now all talk about how we need a national innovation strategy, and it's all we have to innovate and innovate, but innovation is something you do when the basic model is okay and you need to improve on it, but actually our fundamental model is completely broken, so we need to be reimagining stuff, not innovating and putting imagination back in the heart of school and public life and university and community life and having this sort of renaissance of imagination in everybody's daily experience and tr- tr- trying to think of you know is is there any time that strikes you historically whether in the rec- in recent history or further back when you know we can look back through history and see cultures that produced amazing imaginative artwork but often that was the the wealthy people paying the artists and being patrons of the artists to make amazing work for them in terms of times when it felt like in the general culture was alive with imagination and imagination sort of stalked the land. uh, Is there any, any times that particularly would come to your mind as times of, of great imaginative vigor? In my lifetime or historically, not necessarily. I mean, well, like the examples we've got so far, someone's come up with that there was a period in Chinese history around 1000 AD uh, where there was amazing stuff. There was a period in Geneva where they they kind of uh, crowdsourced their own participatory utopian uh, constitution or something like that. There's like Paris in like, all the stuff in 1968 or there's different sort of like Occupy and those things in the squares, which tend to be kind of activist spaces in reaction to something. But anywhere where it was that was the norm, you know.
1: I think I think I mean having worked in the theatre in the sort of 1980s and 1990s, you know, when we were working with international artists, I I do remember a time because we were working with artists in. China during Tiananmen Square. We were working with artists pre the fall of apartheid and after the fall of apartheid. We worked with artists in Chile during the fall of Pinochet. And I do remember feeling so compelled by the work that those artists were doing, because sometimes they had been doing them under threat of their lives, you know, working under very, very oppressive regimes and sometimes being tortured and sometimes dying for it, for, for telling their stories on, on a stage. And I do remember a period sort of leading up to the fall of the Berlin Wall and in 1989, and just this tremendous sense of how, I mean, Vaclav Havel always used to say that when he was in prison, In, in, you know, what was then Czechoslovakia is that he always said that he used to behave as though he were a free man, as if he were a free man when he was in prison. Um, you know, and how he engaged with the guards and all that. He, he acted as if he were a free man. But so just thinking about the theatre world in those years, we could not have not put on some of the shows that you know, before 1992 in South Africa and the work of artists like the Market Theatre in Johannesburg because of this sort of profound depth of the communal imagination and experience that the world doesn't need to be like this, you know. And if we tell these stories, maybe the world won't be like this, you know. And so, yeah, I suppose coming from a theatre perspective, I always had that sense that, the theater was a place where people could experience live what other worlds were like and it was a place where people inhabited you know other people's lives and i mean there was a play that was incredibly successful called Death and the maiden um which we put on at the royal court which was written by someone called Ariel Dorfman and Juliet Stevenson played um the woman in that and she it's after the it's after the fall of Pinochet, but it's to do with meeting the guard in prison. And it's, it's to do with a relationship during a time of, of, um, you know, torture and great cruelty. Um, yeah. So I think that art, you know, uh, John Jordan, who's a great compass on the role that our creativity plays in resisting. Um, you know, he says, don't let anyone ever tell you that art cannot change the world. You know, it always has and it always will do. There's a good, there was a good quote actually his, which I quite like, which is about, uh, what's, um, you know, this sort of expectation of change. I can send it to you, but he says, history shows us that the most powerful tool of rebellion is not the size of your party or the power of your weapons, but your ability to create the expectation of change. Insurrection is the art of feeding the imagination, you know. So it's not just about the kind of artworks we create, but it's a very, it's a kind of deep, deep sense of, of what we need as human beings. And I don't, I don't really know enough about it because I haven't sort of studied, you know, deeper levels of sort of consciousness, but I think this idea of the deep imagination, you know, what is the deep imagination? And I I was just thinking about it the other day, you know, maybe tuning into your imagination is effectively tuning in. What if it is tuning into every single thought, idea and action and dream and picture and image and legend and myth that anyone has ever thought ever, ever and will ever? You know, what what if it's that deep and wide and broad, which I think it probably is, you know, not just a little bubble in our head, but actually it, it, it's us connecting deeply collectively to the deepest level possible, you know, and that, that will be the earth and the planet and the land and time, you know. And, you know, if you want to kind of really control people, then yeah, probably quite a good idea to keep them out of that and keep selling them pa- plastic orange pumpkins
0: at Halloween or something in a packet. <laughs> it, I, it seems like, you know, we live in a time we're quite possibly the least imaginative government in the history of government in this country. And, uh, um, but at the same time, you know, our salvation lies in reconnecting to imagination on a big scale. You know, if you, if you were elected, if you ran on the, ran as a, a, the Imagination Party or something, and you ran for government, and you were elected as Prime Minister Lucy uh, next year, and you had run on a platform of Make Britain Imaginative Again, so you felt in, in the same way we might have had the Industrial Revolution or the Digital Revolution, we now needed to have... Uh, a national imagination revolution a, a national imagination strategy something that was that was completely about putting that back at the forefront of education of public life of everything and you and you were voted in and you're sitting there in 10 downing street behind the desk Theresa may is just heading off out with her last box of papers and and stuff and you're settling down what what's the first things you might set about doing where would you start
1: I think I'd probably call it let's make. Yeah. I think I put a bit of an invitation in there rather than a, a, delivery, a delivery order. <laughs> um Well, I think just starting humbly with the Arts Council, actually, I, I would write a script for them that goes along the lines of, you know, this is a climate emergency, the sort of, you know, yes and... And, you know, be, be unashamed in, in just how being very, um, um, bold in naming how it is that artists work and, you know, that they, that their role can be absolutely central to making space, building bridges, you know, creating different alternatives and possibilities and that, um, and just make sure that there are resources for the work that could happen, that it and doesn't have to sort of be something else. It doesn't have to kind of necessarily be part of other sectors' work. You know, I mean, there's a lot of very good work that ha- particularly in arts and health or in, um, you know, arts and education. But I, I think just being quite bold about the way in which this is a moment in time. I mean, I know there would be some resistance to that because we almost said, God, have we all got to do a sort of musical about climate change? But actually, you know, what I, what I learned from playing for time and other things like it is that the, uh, the, the work that broadly across the country that artists and arts organizations are engaged in, there is no shortage of work that is absolutely kind of connecting, you know, with these sort of systems and things like that. Um, I think what would be very imaginative is I think for really, sectors to work together, you know, I think that's what I would love to see, is to see less siloed sectors, you know, the point at which health is working with education, is working with food growing, is working with energy, is working with, you know, that the, the, there's a real playfulness about these things working together and not not at odds or not competitively, and working in a sort of... Um, frame of abundance, abundance of ideas. I think we've got this sort of you know, austerity has done so much damage in so many different ways but it sort of it sort of cuts out any idea of abundance at all, which is kind of nonsense because life is enthusiastic for life and therefore you know, you can work with abundance. You have to keep your focus right on what is it that's scarce and what is it that's abundant, but you don't want to strike abundance off your list, just because, you know, there is need. Um, oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I completely agree about the... But, I mean, maybe they're just all terrified, probably. I would be terrified if I'd made such a mess of things. But then I'd have the decency to step off the stage. Yes, and to say, oops, I'd rather fucked up there. Yeah, I mean, it's the lack of self-awareness, which is... um And and shared working, you know, which is where these, you know, someone like Caroline Lucas is constantly suggesting, you know, working together on things. No, I mean, one of the things that would be fantastic to do is that Transition Town Anywhere activity that we did in Bastille Arts Centre years ago, you know, where we kind of built a town. And that would be fun to do everywhere. That could be enjoyable and come up with some new things.
0: Why was that so amazing? Do you think? I mean, I, I you know, I, I still meet people who we start talking about it and they get and they and they their eyes fills up fill up with tears, you know.
1: Well, I think the tears is because people suddenly found themselves working very productively and creatively with a lot of other people, and they didn't necessarily know everyone in the room, and yet they had a they had a shared making purpose. I think it was practical. I think Ruth sort of framed the levels of story of yourself and your neighbourhood and your street and your town so it, it didn't go straight to how you get to rebuild your town but it, it worked for where it worked you know it goes back to your, one of your earlier questions about what makes a good invitation is starting with where people are you know so in our little tooting Twelve, we started where people are which was right in the town centre but in that town activity we, you start with where people are personally and then you kind of build that, build that, build that build that but these are all You know, we know how to do these things, but it's, it's quite a lot of work to do them. If you, if we need, yeah, that, that would be, I think that could be done very, very productively in a lot of different places and also building on what everyone else is doing, whether it's in Preston or Birmingham or whatever it is. I think, well, why do you think, I'll ask you that question. Why do
0: you think it was? I talked to Philippa about it. She said, she said I just sat on a chair and cried <laughs> for the whole three hours. She said because it because it took me to it, it 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 took me to a place I hadn't been since I was a child. You know, in that actually there were three hundred and fifty people or whatever it was playing. Playing in a way I hadn't played like that since maybe I was about seventeen, I suppose. Just lost totally in this kind of immersive multi-sensory world that that didn't exist an hour ago and won't exist again in a couple of hours for that moment felt so real and everybody you know our people always say that thing about you know well money only exists because we all we all believe it and we all agree that it's real you know that that existed because we all suspended our disbelief for that time and all played it into existence. And, uh, and, and it had a kind of a, there was a kind of, um, you know, for me, it was like the, the the thing that I was involved in that, in that where we created a brewery and a bakery in the same space, you know, now six years later, we're doing that. That's going to happen. You know, by the summer, that will be a reality. I spoke to Isabella in in Brazil. The thing that she played in that event, she has now created in in life. You know, there was that sense of actually we're going to play it, and it and it. You know that that thing about you know creating a vision for the future, where you throw a whirlpool in front of you that draws you towards it. It felt like that. It felt like we played we played stuff into reality somehow.
1: But you see, not, what I think is interesting about where we're at at the moment is that we have so much knowledge and experience which we can draw on. But if, if you look at people who um, like Winnicott and the, the real experts in learning and play and childhood development and we know all this stuff, you know, we know how the imagined nation kind of builds lives for children we know how to create play we we know we know it all um uh, and it's it's to validate it you know if we validated it and got on with it but it is it is to do with working together um it is to do with making the spaces um and it is we used to call it at Lyft. we used to have something called deadline magic um you know which is actually if you set a time or a date or something, right? Say so, okay, now we work backwards. You know, then you get amazing things done. And that day, I don't know what it was. We had four or five hours, so you're kind of slightly working against the clock. Um, but then we're going to stop, and then you're going to go off and have a cup of tea or a pint of beer or something, you do something different. So it's, it is existing in a very distinct time frame, but its impact afterwards. Um is real. Ari de Hus always used to talk about, and as you know, it was Julia, various different people brought this together, but talked about, we have a memory of the future. but And I've always seen everything I do as a pilot or an experiment for the next thing you do. So you're constantly rehearsing. And that when you play and, you know, open up different possibilities, you're, you're rehearsing lots of ideas of what could happen. And then this is idea that actually when you get to that moment in time, you know, like with your brewery or something, you've kind of had a scenario where you've thought it through or you've imagined it or you've felt it and you go, and it is therefore a memory of the future. Um, and that that's what we do all the time. We're playing that out every day in our lives all the time. Um, but I think, no, I think we have fallen off some fundamental perch somewhere about, you know, um, John Fox has said, we, we've fallen into a world where money matters, um, and, but I do think the evidence is that the waking up is happening quite a lot. I, I had a profound moment during one of the Extinction Rebellion days on the bridges and I was familiar with all the places in London where all that was, you know, whether it was Parliament Square or Buckingham Palace or Whitehall, how many times have one been up and down those roads? And I was also familiar with all the pronouncements that were being made, with the declaration and you know, the extinction and, and all those facts and figures. I'm familiar with all those. That wasn't new, and the places weren't new. What felt of profound newness to me was hearing that those declarations in those places. That was a reinvention for me. And it it, 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 it was a moment when something kind of really kicked in for me, when I thought this is playing out now. Collectively in our imaginations, the knowledge of the truth of what is being said here, but at the same time, the sort of sense of a, a togetherness in how people kind of act and respond, you know, and that that felt like a shift for me in the air. Uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful account that some, somebody gave once of when the Pope, way back, visited Poland. The Catholic Pope visited Poland, and because the youth movement of the church, had stewards and youth in every town that he was visiting. The state, which was communist, had to hand over to the youth movement of the Catholic church, the stewarding for the crowds everywhere the Pope went. So the crowds at large were being managed by young people in white T-shirts. And apparently there was a moment in time when a Russian general looked at the Polish you know, Yarolelsky. And apparently it was just a moment where they acknowledged that the public consciousness had shifted because they'd been able to imagine what it would be like not to have a communist oppressive state regime because suddenly they were all in the street with these kids in, in white t-shirts. And it's, it's kind of interesting when those kind of shifts happen. Um, and just sort of one last thing to say about that is that. Doogie Strang told me a story about the Gaelic hero, Finn McCool, who asked his followers, you know, what is the best music? What is the best sound in the whole world? And they said things like a child laughing or a bird in the bush or a sword on a on a shield. And he said, those are all wonderful sounds. But the best sound in the world is the music of what happens. And that I really like that. You know, you don't know what can happen and it's the music of what happens. And going going back to that town activity that I think that what was moving and exciting for everyone was, was the sort of music of what happens. Because things were happening around us that day when we came. And it was surprising and it was curious and it was unexpected. But such things can be staged.
0: Measuring imagination is like really, really like Saying this, this, this is more. Ima- this person's more imaginative than that person, or you know, any of that is very, very fraught with trickiness. But how, how would you know that the place you lived was becoming more imaginative? How would you, how would you observe a resurgence of the imagination? What would it look like? How would you recognise it? It'd
1: be a rather lovely place to live, really, wouldn't it? Lovely, quirky things popping up on people's walls. There's a there's a wall round here where somebody's rebuilt their wall, like a sort of Dali-esque bit of Barcelona. And you know, sometimes I just go down that road and somebody's just taken lots of broken cups and made a complete thing. Um yeah I think it would be invitational and you know, just everyday life would would be delightful and where you could gather or where you could eat or things that were offered for free that you could take part in. or I think it would feel quite equitable. I think it would have spaces where people could share things. Um, people would not feel so excluded. And that would bring about a sense of um, purpose to, to the place itself. That the young and the old and the frail, or the, you know, everyone was involved in some way. Um things happened. You know, you could get out of bed and think, I have no idea what's going to happen today, but I think it might be something quite nice. I'll go and have a look. I'll go round the corner and have a look. Um I mean having said that, I do live that out pretty much every day at the Lido because as you know, at our dear Lido and Teeting there's a South London swimming club and that's we just had these champs on Saturday, and there were about a hundred volunteers working to produce that. And it's playful. You know, people make hats and swim in races and they are having fun whilst also hosting a thousand people who are coming to kind of watch. And there's a there's an element of joy and energy in the air. Um, and I think joy is the word I'd find is that there would be joy in the air. And I think that joy is very radical. I think joy is a radical force because I think it connects us all to um, life and you know, as I've said, life is enthusiastic for life, you know, and that, that's what we have to hold on to is that by supporting the processes of life is what our kind of job is really, isn't it? And I, and so I think an art that is in service to life um, and a way of living that is in service to life, I think it would produce joy.